I grew up in Washington, D.C., and when I think about first encountering her work, I don't remember a moment. I remember an ambience mm -hmm. um, that she was a name that you always knew. Um, I'm certain that I saw work at the Corcoran. I probably saw work with my mother at Barnett Aden. Yes. So, you know, with that gallery and, and Washington and its black art spaces, mm -hmm. I think that must have been a spot. Mm -hmm. And as far as her civic life, I always thought about her in her school teacher life. So Right. And her long years at Shaw Elementary. And to me, Alma Thomas was a familiar sort to me. Uh, she was, was like my grandmother, um, also someone who came from the South, Alma Thomas, Georgia, my grandmother, Alabama, Alma Thomas a little earlier. She went to Armstrong High School. My grandmother went to Dunbar High School. But all of my grandmother's friends from high school became DC public school teachers. Mm -hmm. And they were incredible ladies. Mm -hmm. And so in, in, in reading, in preparation for our time together, reading that Alma Thomas wrote about the use of marionettes yes. in education yes. for her teacher's college, right. master's mm -hmm. in, in arts education, mm -hmm. I thought about what it meant to bring all those treasures and cultural richnesses mm -hmm. to D.C. public school students, to black children, right. and to say that their lives should be rich and filled with beauty. Exactly. And that's what fascinated me about her. She had a very 20th century life for a black woman. Mm -hmm. I grew up as well among my mother's friends mm -hmm. for whom teaching yes. was their move into the professional class. And I grew up with women who were school teachers, black women. And that work didn't end at the end of the school day. That's right. Because they were also the women who were our Sunday school teachers, mm -hmm. who were, you know, involved in community organizations. Mm -hmm. They always saw their role as leaders in the community, knowing how important education was and could be right, mm -hmm. for young black people. So her life as a teacher also uh, was incredibly inspiring because I could only imagine who she was to those students yes. and, you know, that long career and how many students she touched. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And reading about and seeing pictures of her self-presentation, again, wow. to the genre of the ladies. Completely. <laughs> you know, the, the photographs from, you know, the various openings, you know, that we've all seen where not only, you know, do we get the sense of her real physical power, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, she had this incredible presence, but also her incredible style, mm -hmm. right? And how that style clearly was also a manifestation of that sense of creativity mm -hmm. that came out in the artwork, but also the way in which she lived her life. I hope you enjoyed the excerpt of the wonderful conversation between, between Elizabeth Alexander and Thelma Golden as much as I did. And I hope you get to see the conversation in its entirety if you haven't already. My name is Stephen Nelson, and I'm Dean of the Center for Advanced Studies in the Visual Arts at the National Gallery of Art. I hope you have enjoyed the other events commemorating Alma Thomas as well thus far. And it's my pleasure to introduce you and well to welcome you to this afternoon's discussion and talks on Alma Thomas's practice and DC cultural institutions. This panel's presentations focus on Thomas's training and her relationship with local institutions. Before we begin, I would like to thank everyone who made these events possible. It takes a village or the city of DC. For today, I particularly want to express my gratitude to Sarah Battle, Allie Peel, Rachel Tanzi, Emily Ann Francisco, Heidi Thomas, and Shane Bremer. Now let's get on with our program. I'm going to introduce the speakers and they will 
give their talks. And then after that, we'll have a moderated conversation and then open up to questions. Rebecca Van Diver, Assistant Professor of African-American Art and the Dean's Faculty Fellow from 2019 to 2021, Mellon Faculty Fellow in Digital Humanities 2021, is, in, is a, a professor of art history at Vanderbilt University. She's also an Alma W. Thomas Everything is Beautiful catalog contributor. Dr. Van Diver teaches courses on modern and contemporary African-American art, the history of women artists, and contemporary African art and culture. Her research focuses on 20th century Black women artists, and more recently, the use of ephemeral print in African-American art. She's the author of the 2020 book, Designing a New Tradition, Lois Mayu Jones and the Aesthetics of Blackness. She is affiliated faculty with the Department of African-American and Diaspora Studies, as well as the program in American Studies at Vanderbilt. She received her bachelor's degree at Harvard and her PhD at Duke. Our second speaker, Renee Maurer, is associate curator at the Phillips Collection. She is organizing the Phillips presentation this fall of the Alma W. Thomas Everything is Beautiful exhibition. Other exhibitions she has coordinated include Rifts and Revelations, African-American Artists in the European Modernist Tradition, guest curated by Adrian Childs in 2020, A Modern Vision, European Masters from the Phillips Collection and its tour, 2017 to 2020, Toulouse-Lautrec illustrates the Belle Epoque from 2017, Gauguin de Picasso, Masterworks from Switzerland 2016, American Moments, Photographs from the Phillips Collection 2015, Georges Braque and the Cubist Still Life 20, 1928 to 1945 from 2013, and Jasper John's Variations on a Theme from 2012. Prior to working at the Phillips, Maurer was a research assistant here at the National Gallery of Art. Our third speaker, Nell Painter, the painter formerly known as the artist, the historian Nell Irvin Painter is the author of The History of White People, Sojourner Truth, A Life, A Symbol, and Creating Black Americans. And she was also the Edwards Professor of American History at Princeton University. She's now emerita. She lives and works in Newark, New Jersey. Nell's work carries discursive as well as visual meanings, and she makes it in her characteristic manual and digital process. Using found images and digital manipulation, she reconfigures the past and revisions herself through self-portraits. After a life of historical truth and political engagement with American society, her artwork represents freedom, including the freedom to be totally self-centered. In addition to her historical and artistic lives, Nell is also a contributor to the Alma W. Thomas Everything is Beautiful catalog, and she's the author of the 2018 book Olden Art School, a memoir of starting over. I would like to turn the virtual lectern over to Rebecca Van Diver. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Um, I'd like to begin by saying thank you uh, to Dean Nelson for moderating our panel uh, and to the staff at the National Gallery of Art for arranging uh, this fantastic uh, group uh, and event. And I'm delighted to be sharing some remarks today on the significance of Howard University's art department to Alma Thomas. Uh, to that end, I'd also like to acknowledge uh, several scholars, um, Mr. Scott Baker, Professor Theresia Bush, Dr. Gwendolyn Everett, and the late Dr. Tritobia Benjamin for their work in documenting um, this department's historic legacy. 
On April 24, 1966, Alma W. Thomas, a retrospective exhibition, opened at the Howard University Art Gallery. The retrospective pulled Thomas back to her alma mater, where her fine arts training began in the 1920s. She holds the distinction, as some of you may be well aware, of being the department's first graduate. The exhibition marked the start of Thomas's meteoric rise in the art world that would see her become the first African-American woman to have a solo show at the Whitney Museum of American Art in 1972, among other accolades. Throughout her career, Thomas remained happily in Howard's orbit, subject to the push and pull of its increasing gravitational force, Orbits and circles as metaphors and motifs that work their way into Thomas's artistic practice, her social and institutional lives will be discussed by several of the panelists today. Uh, and the photo shown here on the right shows Thomas at the opening of her retrospective, um, standing with James V. Herring uh, and the late David Driscoll, uh, as well as Alonzo Aiden. The significance of Howard's Department of Art and its gallery in the American art scene had grown tremendously since Thomas's 1924 graduation. For much of the 20th century, Howard, known colloquially as the Mecca, was a beacon of Black intellectualism and creative output. A number of formidable Black artists passed through the same classrooms as Thomas. Among them, and it's impossible to name them all here, include Elizabeth Catlett, David Driscoll, Earl Hooks, Delilah Pierce, James Porter, Malika Roberts, Mildred Thompson, and more. Yet, as I mentioned, Thomas had the distinction of being the first graduate, and as such, found herself afforded the benefits of being a firstborn. In the catalog that accompanied the exhibition in 1966, the former Department of Art chairman, James V. Herring, described meeting his first student. He said, quote, our initial encounter brought together a youthful teacher, pontifical, pontifical and omniscient, and a young student, opinionated and not less omniscient. This beginning has given vivacity, character, and richness to an association that ha which has endured. Herring and Thomas both walked onto Howard's campus in the fall of 1921, filled with hopes and aspirations. Herring centered on building an African-American art center on campus. Although a formal art department did not exist prior to Herring's arrival, art instruction had formed an important part of Howard's curriculum as early as 1868. In 1891, the drawing classes that were offered were moved from the industrial department to the normal department responsible for training teachers. And art history courses were offered at Howard as early as 1914, when Howard President Stephen Newman offered an art history course on campus. But it was not until Herring arrived with an appointment in the Department of Architecture did the seeds of the art department begin to flower. Art historian Elton Facts recalled, quote, in 1921, a dapper, aggressive, young Black man fresh from Syracuse University strode onto the campus with the announcement that he was there to establish an art department. His declaration evoked gales of laughter that must have been heard all the way to Baltimore. The derision came not from the students, but from the administration and some faculty members who should have known better. 
Nonetheless, herring persisted and gradually overcame with watercolors, according to Ramir Bearden and Harry Henderson, the resistance to art courses on the part of Howard trustees. Herring would chair the department from its 1921 inception through his retirement in 1953. Of course, to grow his department, he needed both students and faculty. Thomas became his first successful student recruit when he encountered her in a costume making class offered in the home economics department, Thomas's initial major at Howard. Herring convinced her to declare a major in art. Thomas's late in life art world success dramatically realized Herring's vision and demonstrated the promise of the historically Black university's studio art education on a national scale. And on screen here, two pages from the 1923 Bison, the Howard yearbook, one uh, on the right showcasing uh, Alma Thomas's uh, illustration for the frontispiece for the sorority section, and on the left, uh, a page devoted to Herring's newly founded art school, in which we see a photo of Herring appearing above those of seven art students whose likenesses are arranged like mother puddles on a, a paint on a palette. The text explains that Herring's department was, quote, not only supplying the best facilities for the study of fine arts in general, but by means of regular courses of study, it equips its students for any special line of artistic work which they may desire to follow end quote. Herring worked quickly to expand his teaching uh, staff, faculty, and class offerings. By the time of her graduation, Alma Thomas had the choice of architecture and architectural drawing classes with Albert Castle, Arthur Ferguson, James McKay, and Hilliard Robinson, or studio classes in painting, sculpture, and drawing taught by Herring, Gwendolyn Bennett, May Howard Jackson, Madeline Rosa Ward. Current Howard University Dean Lisa Farrington has elsewhere discussed the key role that women artists played in the Department of Arts trajectory, both as students like Alma Thomas, but also as instructors. So much importance is often placed on achieving African-American firsts, uh, and Howard University's Department of Art predated the establishment of similar departments at peer institutions by at least a decade. I think it's also important to think about some of the excitement and challenges of being in a newly formed department. We would have surely been facing administrative, administrative institutional and enrollment challenges. On screen here, some examples of uh, Thomas's costume designs uh, that she produced uh, while an undergraduate. During her time at Howard, Thomas's classmates included James A. Porter, who became the department's second graduate in 1927 and who would join the department's faculty in 1928. Uh, on screen here is a life drawing Porter produced um, while a student that was recently sold at auction, evidence of the life drawing classes uh, that these students would have partaken taken. When May Howard Jackson was teaching, Herring made sure to hire models from the Corcoran Gallery of Art who would come to campus twice a week. Significantly, Thomas's tenure in the Department of Art at Howard predated Herring's hiring of James L. Wells, James A. Porter, and Lois Maylou Jones, the triumvirate of faculty who would shepherd the department from the 1930s through the 1960s. 
While she did not benefit from Wells, Porter, and Jones as instructors at Howard, Thomas would acknowledge these contemporaries as friends and sometimes rivals as the years progressed. In 1924, she graduated. And on screen here, we have uh, her yearbook page with her quote um, saying that she will delve into art post-graduation. And the quote that will be much discussed uh, during uh, this citywide celebration, what is form far, what is more far-reaching than beauty? Following her graduation, the June 14, 1924 Washington Tribune reproduced the middle of her capstone triptych shown here on the left, along with a short article that was detailing the happenings in Howard University's art department. In many ways, this combination of Thomas's work as a graduate, um, published after she graduated, with an article detailing uh, the activities of the Department of Art, fixes Thomas to the department and its legacy. After Thomas graduated, she took a position teaching art at Shaw Junior High, less than a mile south of Howard's campus. The grounds of her alma mater, particularly the Gallery of Art, remained one of her regular haunts. Alonzo Aiden, Herring's partner, served as curator of the gallery, which had opened in 1930 in the basement of the Andrew Rankin Memorial Chapel shown here on the left. The gallery's exhibitions of African, American, Japanese, and assorted Western art reflected Herring's approach to art instruction, which included a broad education in artistic traditions, both Western and non-Western. Herring and Thomas, or Herring shared with uh, Alma Thomas and James Porter this wider um, approach to the training uh, of African-American artists in Western art, and the pair sparred with their Howard colleague, Elaine Locke, who in the 1920s and 1930s was championing the African-American artist's embrace of African art. Although she was regular at, a regular at the gallery and friendly with this new cohort of faculty on campus, Thomas appears to have sidestepped this aesthetic debate as she pursued her teaching career. She did, of course, capitalize on her relationship with Herring and Aiden to be able to use the Gallery of Art on campus as a venue for her students' marionette performances, but also as a place to take her students um, as part of her own uh, instruction. And on screen here, um, we have a photograph um, showing her in the gallery with some of her young students. While Thomas was pursuing a career uh, teaching junior high, Herring, Jones, Porter, and Wells were working steadily to extend the course offerings at Howard University and to expand the comprehensive studio art program. And it's during the 1930s that his uh, former student, uh, David Driscoll, says that Howard University's art department was the place to study African-American art, not the Ivy, um, ivory towers of the Ivy League. In the 1930s and 1940s, James Porter was being groomed as Herring's uh, successor. Uh, and we see in 1943, the same year that 
Alma Thomas joins uh, Barnett Aiden Gallery, that James Porter publishes his modern Negro art, his seminal survey of African-American artistic production. Uh, in the 1930s, we see that the Howard University Art Department becomes um, aware of its own uh, future in many ways. In 1934, there's an amendment to the course catalog, um, which says that the, the Department of Art has the right to reserve two works of art from each student for its permanent collection. Uh, perhaps aware that the students passing through the department's um, art classrooms would end up in the African-American art history books down the line. Thomas became even more enmeshed um, with Herring's uh, and the Howard Circle in the 1940s and 1950s, participating in the Barnett Aiden Gallery uh, and also uh, joining Lois Milu Jones's Little Paris Studio, the weekly salon that met at Jones's home off campus that was designed to provide opportunities for local Black painters uh, to work, critique, and exhibit uh, their art. In 1960, when Thomas retired from Shaw Junior High, um, she found herself uh, in a position to explore her artistic practice more fully. Herring had retired just a few years before her in 1953 and explained that when she retired, her retirement was, quote, not, has not been from, but into art. In 1970, or at the age of 75, rather, in 1966, Thomas received the invitation from James Porter, her former Howard classmate turned professor, turned department chair to mount the retrospective at Howard University. This project offered uh, Thomas a way out of her arthritic doldrums, and it also provided her an opportunity to return to her alma mater. Many of the pieces exhibited in this retrospective showcased the short brushstrokes that would become her signature painting style. It's fittingly, but after this retrospective closed at the end of May, the 42nd annual student exhibition opened next in the gallery. Thomas, the department's first graduate, regularly supported Howard students via scholarships funded by the sale of her paintings and her retirement pension. So during the mid-1960s, the Howard student body became increasingly politically active. And following the rising Black power and Black arts movement, students began to call for the university to adapt a more Afro-American orientation. Uh, this cut um, spread from the December 1971 issue of Ebony Magazine detailing some of the changes happening on the art building um, on campus. And the political agnosticism of the Department of Art and Gallery ended with Herring and Porter's deaths in 1969 and 1970, with Jeff Donaldson being appointed uh, chair of the department in 1970. Despite the lack of political or perhaps Africanized content in her paintings, Thomas remained, retained a revered status within the Howard community. In 1975, the university conferred upon Thomas its Alumni of Achievement Award, citing her distinguished postgraduate contributions in the fields of art and colorifics. Three years later, efforts to revive Thomas during open heart surgery failed, and she died on the operating table at Howard University Hospital. Fittingly, for the shining star of Howard's art department, her memorial service was held in Andrew Rankin Chapel, directly above the original gallery of art. 
Howard graduate and Barnett Aiden director Aldovis Ely delivered one of the funeral tributes that undoubtedly touched upon how Howard was a constant in Thomas's life. The varied and simultaneous intellectual and artistic trajectories, both of Howard's first graduate, Alma Thomas, and its growing department, points to the ways in which Howard University's Department of Art has left an indelible mark on the shaping the contours of 20th century African-American art. I'd like to hand uh, the torch over to Phillips curator, Renee Maurer. Uh, thank you so much, Rebecca, and thank you um, to the National Gallery for this invitation. Alma Thomas lived and worked within a broad and complex social networks of institutions in Washington, D.C. that included the Phillips Collection, Howard University, Barnett Aiden Gallery, and American University. A central player in a series of art worlds at a time when the city was largely segregated, Thomas collaborated with leaders of these cultural institutions, intersecting her professional and social inner circles in DC's local art scene. This presentation will link relevant relationships which came together during Thomas's developmental years as an artist and grew from connections made initially between the Phillips Collection and Howard University. In 1921, when Thomas began studies at Howard, the cultural landscape of DC was shifting. That year, Howard hired James B. Herring, who designed the institution's first formal fine arts department, and Duncan and Marjorie Phillips opened the nation's first museum of modern art, now called the Phillips Collection. Thomas later earned the first fine arts degree at Howard and began teaching at Shaw Junior High School, a public school for black students in Washington. The Phillips' support of Howard began in 1930, when Heron opened the Howard University Gallery of Art. Howard's newspaper, The Hilltop, lauded the Phillips' generous loans to the Gallery of Art's inaugural exhibition, and a mutual exchange began between the institutions. Also in that edition of The Hilltop, Thomas's patronage of the university alumni was acknowledged, mer merging in a small way the spheres of Phillips and Thomas with Howard. As Herring's interactions with the Phillips advanced, he likely introduced Thomas to the museum and its collection. A shared belief in local artists brought the social circles of Phillips and Herring closer together, crossing racial lines in a segregated Washington. While Howard's gallery grew, the Phillips expanded its footprint into the community. Phillips hired C. Law Watkins to lead the Phillips's education department, manage art classes, and head the forward-looking Phillips Gallery Art School. Watkins fortified the museum's networking with Howard. He facilitated loan negotiations between Herring and Phillips and aided with key acquisitions. On November 2nd of 1931, a letter from Howard art professor James Lesesney Wells thanked Watkins for his encouragement and mentioned Phillips's purchase of Journey to Egypt the first work by a Black artist acquired by a major DC museum. In January of 1932, Watkins lectured at Howard on modern art and declared Wells a pioneer. The museum's interest in Wells resonated with Howard's supporters, like Thomas, who was close with Wells and would collect his art. In the 1930s, Wells, Watkins, and Robert Gates who taught at the Phillips Gallery Art School and who would become Thomas's teacher, exhibited together at the museum's Washington Room, a space devoted to local artists. 
While reaching into the community, Phillips and his staff collaborated with public schools throughout the district. As Shaw's art teacher, Thomas likely visited the Phillips collection in December of 1935. Rosa and Hampton coordinated the trip for art teachers in division 10 through 13, the designation given to DC schools for black students. Phillips confirmed the tour request and mentioned a show on view that featured public works of art project artists he supported while regional chair, and other local artists like Wells, Watkins, Gates, and Sarah Baker, a future teacher of Thomas. After the tour, Hampton thanked Phillips. May you long continue the very fine work you've so ably established for public enjoyment. Inspired by museum visits in this city and New York, Thomas organized the School Arts League in 1936 at Shaw a program devoted to art in DC. It grew to encompass several local schools and hundreds of students explored the Howard University Art Gallery, the Central Public Library, the Smithsonian, the Corcoran, the Phillips Collection, and other institutions. At Shaw, Thomas also launched DC's first public school art gallery. Exhibition brochures prominently featured Howard faculty, like Wells, who Thomas acknowledged had work at the Phillips and PWAP artists, also supported by Phillips, among others. Phillips received invitations to these events. The news of Phillips's exhibition and acquisitions of panels from Jacob Lawrence's The Migration Series spread throughout the city in 1942. Events that coincided with their presentation included a, a performance by acclaimed opera singer, Madame Lillian Avante in the music room. A friend and classmate of Ivante's from Armstrong High School, Thomas likely attended this event on February 15th. Howard colleagues also announced the display of the panels. Herring acknowledged it at the Regional Conference of the College Art Association, and James Porter illustrated the works in his seminal book, Modern Negro Art. In 1943, Thomas became primary funder and vice president of the socially progressive Barnett Aiden Gallery, founded by Herring and Howard curator Alonzo Aiden. Located in Herring and Aiden's Bloomingdale home, the gallery promoted Black artists and brought together works from different places and time periods in a domestic setting. Herring and Aiden, excuse me, Herring and Aiden credited the displays at the Phillips Collection as an influence. Its first exhibition, Art for the Home, featured loans from the Phillips and neighboring institutions by Wells, Watkins, and Lawrence, among others. The gallery became a premier destination for interracial exhibitions and programs. During opening, Thomas was near the front door to welcome the stream of visitors. Artists associated with the Phillips exhibited at Barnett Aiden. The Phillipses and staff could be found at events. In a 1949 letter, Aiden expressed deep appreciation to Phillips for his visit and purchase of Irene Rice Pierre's transversion from her solo show. That summer, Barnett Aiden Associates, including Aiden, Thomas, and Avante, attended Carol Blanton's piano recital in the Phillips' music room, which, along with other concerts in the city, served as sources of inspiration for Thomas's work. In the fall of 1952, David C. Driscoll and Phillips met at the Barnett Aiden's ninth anniversary exhibition, Paintings Purchased by Patrons, 1943-52, to, to which Phillips lent Pierre's transversion. 
Driscoll was working at Barden Aiden at the time. A year later, he met Alma Thomas. Their paths crossed during Barnett Aiden's 10th anniversary exhibition, 18 Washington Artists, which featured loans from Howard and American University faculty and loans from the Phillips. Thomas may have encountered the Phillipses there. They attended and kept the exhibition brochure. Aiden sent a thank you letter and clipping from the show to Phillips. Thomas and her former student, Bill Taylor, also promoted the Phillips to Driscoll, which he visited with his teachers from Howard and with Thomas. While still teaching at Shaw, Thomas took painting classes at American University from 1952 to 57. Thomas benefited from the network of her teachers at American. Gates, Baker, Ben Summerford, and Jacob Kanan had firm ties to Howard, Barnett Aiden, and the Phillips through exhibition opportunities, art acquisitions, and art training. Watkins had built a bridge between the Phillips and American, fortified by his merger of the Phillips Art School and AU's new modern art department and gallery. Students divided their time between academic courses at the university and drawing and painting classes at the Phillips. During Watkins' tenure and after, AU staffed its art gallery department uh, with former Phillips Art School alums and associates, including Thomas's teacher, Gates, Baker, and Summerford. Their education, in part, came from a close study of the modern art at the Phillips and the color field canvases by Bonard, Matisse, Cezanne, and Carl Cannot inspired their discussions and their work. Summerford explained, Washington was barren except for the Phillips and AU. Keenan would later say, the big influence in this town was the Phillips Gallery on Artists. Phillips supported Gates, Summerford, Baker, and Keenan, and during the summer of 1952, presented their work in an exhibition of paintings by a group of Washington artists, which Thomas would have seen. An acquisition Phillips made in the mid-1950s influenced Gates and Keenan and later pushed Thomas towards abstraction. Thomas said, Cezanne's unfinished painting of a landscape, garden at Les Lodes, gave me the idea of using color to structure a painting. Also in the 1950s, the Phillips began exhibiting and acquiring art by Pollock, de Kooning, Gottlieb, Stamus, and Nicholas Trishaw, whose colorful pattern surfaces, according to Driscoll, were influential to Thomas. Thus, through her teachers and her museum visits, the Phillips collection filtered through the art of Thomas. Thomas and her peers, Morris Lewis, Ken Nolan, and Jean Davis, cultivated and built upon the relationships in play at the Phillips, Howard, Barnett, Aiden, and AU, and they found many ways to participate within this network that supported local artists. For example, Nolan had art alongside the work of Thomas's teachers at Phillips's 1952 Paintings by a Group of Washington Artists show. In 1956, Nolan, Davis, Lewis Gates, Summerford, and Thomas had art in the Contemporary Artists Group at Barnett Aiden. In 1958, Thomas and Pierre featured paintings at the Howard Art Gallery. A year later, Thomas exhibited at the Watson Gallery at AU. In 1960, the Mark Rothko exhibition, excuse me, in 1960, the Mark Rothko exhibition and the opening of the Rothko Room at the Phillips impacted Thomas and her contemporaries. Driscoll said, Thomas was often seen in the room where the Rothkos were hung. 
That year, Thomas's experiments with watercolors led to her successful debut at the DuPont Theater Gallery solo show, which was facilitated by Kanan and Aiden. A year later, Blue Abstraction, featured at Howard's New Vista in American Art, was awarded third prize. Kanan said, Thomas looked at everything, and at the Phillips, that included European contemporaries like Maria Vieira da Silva, and later shows of Jacob Kanan, Robert Bates, Franz Bader, and Howard Maring, as seen in a selection from her archive. Thomas said, I keep with what's going on, and I go to exhibitions. I like to feel myself part of this day and time. Having attended the 1965 exhibition, The Washington Color Painters, Thomas's interactions with Lewis, Davis, Noland, and others spurred on her experiments with acrylic paints. Lewis, Nolis, and Davis admitted that they found valuable art exposure at the Phillips. David said his interest in color came directly from the French-oriented painting that Mr. Phillips collected. Thomas, inspired by Davis's approach, credited him with influencing her signature style. She said, I passed through an expressionist state and emerged as an abstract painter using the pure color parallel strip format pioneered by the Washington color painters. Thomas's 1966 Howard retrospective they viewed her experiments and her almost strength. Sam Gilliam, loosely, loosely associated with the Washington Color School painters, was friendly with Thomas, likely attended her retrospective, and had his first major show at the Phillips a year later. From Thomas, Gilliam learned the necessity of social networking in DC. He said, if there was anybody doing anything, Alma would call you and would talk to you. In Washington, you spend as much time visiting people and talking to go forward with something. At the end of 1971, Gilliam, Thomas, Noland, and Davis, and several contemporaries exhibited at the Phillips in a small loan exhibition of Washington artists. Thomas featured an acrylic watercolor there related to her atmospheric effect series. Thomas kept the brochure and the flyer for the concert in her archives. In her writings, Marjorie Phillips noted Thomas's work as very nice. Reviewing the exhibition for the Sunday Star, Benjamin Foragabe reflected all of these artists were nurtured on the paintings at the Phillips. Later, Gillian observed that Thomas responded to the Rothkos, the Lewises, and the Nolans in the collection. Inspired by Phillips's support of local art, Thomas's dealer, Franz Bader, in 1976 donated breeze rustling through fall flowers to the museum. Bader wrote to the then museum director, Lachlan Phillips, son of Duncan and Marjorie, I know Miss Thomas is very happy to be re represented in your collection. Lachlan wrote to Thomas that her painting was hanging steadily since its arrival, bringing pleasure to staff and visitors alike. As the Phillips prepares to host the exhibition, Alma Thomas, Everything is Beautiful, it is interesting to consider the DC art scene that surrounded Alma Thomas. As she became involved, cultural leaders at the Phillips, Howard, Barnett, Aiden, and AU, had initiated key relationships and collaborations that later forged a larger community in support of local artists. Thomas nurtured these connections, took what she needed from various circles, gave back to them, and helped to interweave them, believing that art was for all time, it is of all ages of every land. 
fluidly navigating through art worlds to move forward and promote change, she recalled, when I came to Washington, that was segregated. And New York, that was segregated. But I always thought the reason was ignorance. I thought myself superior and I kept on going. Culture is sensitivity to beauty. If everybody were cultured, we would have no wars, no disturbance, there would be peace in the world. Thank you. And now I pass the virtual mic over to Professor Neil Painter. Welcome. Thank you, Renee. Uh, and uh, thank you, uh, Rebecca Vandevar. Those are so fascinating. You taught me a lot that I didn't know um, about context. So I want to thank the Wilmerding Symposium and the National Gallery of Art and to the organizers for this um, gorgeous Alma Thomas exhibition that we're commemorating these days. I am really honored to take part and I'm doubly delighted to join you on this panel hosted by the essential art historian, Stephen Nelson. You're going to be hearing a great deal about Alma Thomas and her art within the crucial context of art history, American cultural history, art in Washington, DC, and especially and most importantly, the formal qualities of her amazingly original art. I want to pause over that last part, the amazingly original formal qualities of her art, because my comments bear on part of how it was that she was able to make amazingly original art at a time when so much of the energies of Black artists, of women artists, had to go elsewhere into proving one's abilities as an artist, that is showing that one had mastered or mistressed the skills of the craft, um, here painting, or into addressing the injustices of American society and showing one's race pride. Alma Thomas resisted the call to display her mastery mistressy and to critique racial discrimination. Her art is proudly autonomous, unmistakably her own. How did she manage to do that in the 1960s and 70s, well before the 21st century softening of barriers and quietening of demands for proof? I believe that her age, her old age, her being the oldest person in various settings, gave her psychological and material advantages that undergirded her freedom to make her original art all her own. As an old woman artist myself, I also recognize the freedom that age brings to women, freedom to spend your own money as you please, because you're more likely to have money when you're old than when you were young. Freedom to do what you want to do, even if other people don't see your point in wanting to keep on doing it your way. Alma Thomas, born in 1891, was in fact older, often very much older than the people who shaped her education and advancement. Only in her 1920s study as a Howard University student was she younger than her teachers. And already even then in her 30s, she was likely older than her fellow students. 
At Howard, uh, she knew two senior artists, uh, the teachers uh, like Lois Mayu Jones, um, 1905 to 2000, and James A. Porter, 1905 to 1970, both born a decade and a half after Thomas. James and Porter were skilled 20th century modernists whose refined work of technical mastery mistressy has not been widely exhibited in decades. It's as though their very expertise has damned their work as passé, especially in contrast with what was carelessly termed Thomas's spontaneity and naivete. Thomas's first steps out of obscurity took her five miles northwest of mostly Black Howard University to mostly white American University. The trip took her from Porter and Jones's pre-war styles to the post-war Washington Color School of the white painters Morris Lewis, 1912 to 1962, Kenneth Nolan, 1924 to 1910, and Jean Davis, 1920 to 1985. Thomas knew Jacob Kanan, 1909 to 2001, not all of her artist colleagues at American University were decades younger than she. In the 1970s, David Driscoll, 1931 to 2020, and Edmund Barry Gaither, born 1944, included her work in two groundbreaking exhibitions that introduced her to curators at the Whitney where she became the first Black woman artist to have a solo exhibition in 1972. Thomas was able to recast herself as a painter in the 1960s, thanks to the life she had already led as a teacher, reader, returning student, and pensioner. Teaching provided not only a constant immersion in the arts, as practiced on the junior high school level, but also a steady income that as an unmarried woman, she could spend entirely as she pleased. She didn't have to explain or share what she brought in or spent. She never married, shrugging off inquiries by saying marriage would just create a lot of problems. Plus she was liberated a long time ago. Thomas's own money paved her way in the world money allowing her to attend summer school at Columbia University Teachers College in the 1930s, and money in the 1940s to financially sustain the Barnett Aiden Gallery, where she first showed her work in a professional gallery setting. She had the money for a European trip in 1958. The art world doesn't like to talk about money, preferring the pretense that good art always makes its way by and of itself. But Alma Thomas's money made it possible for her to make and show her art over the course of four decades. From the 1940s, Thomas's money paid for the art books she bought from Franz Bader, 1903 to 1994, 
whose Franz Bader Gallery represented her from the late 1960s until her death. She had the money to furnish the home she inherited from her parents, to keep up its garden, and to purchase the supplies, stretchers, canvas, paint, brushes, plus the cost of shipping and storing the painting she made on a heroic scale. Money sustained Thomas's independence, but money of itself alone did not suffice. Age gave her perspective. Age protected her from the peer pressure weighing on younger fellow students and fellow artists. She set her mind on succeeding as a painter and she did what she knew needed to be done to attend art openings and galas, even when she was the only black person and to pay attention to what artists beyond the confines of her city were making and saying in international art magazines. Age reinforced her firmness, her ability to stick to her own ways of making art, her steadfast determination to pursue art education, even when she was the oldest one in class. Having been 34 when she graduated from Howard with her first fine art degree, she was 44 when she received her Master of Arts from Teachers College, Columbia University. She was still teaching at Shaw Junior High School when she began taking classes at American University in her 60s. The formal freshness of Thomas's art stands in sharp contrast to her longstanding assumptions about race, which have not stood the tests of time. In the 1960s, late 60s, Howard University moved away from its famously unrepentant colorism, but Thomas never shed her early 20th century preferences for light skin and straight hair. She always prized art for art's sake and continued to speak of the artist using the universal masculine he. When it came to the color bar against black artists, she would not go there. She never acknowledged racial discrimination or sexism for that matter, as the art historian Judith Wilson noted in 1978. While protests shoved Alma Thomas forward, her own aesthetic conservatism made her race and her sex acceptable in the early 1970s and kept her bullied long enough for people to focus, lots of people to focus on the originality and strength of her painting. In the 60 years since Alma Thomas began painting full-time, aesthetic tastes have changed, barriers in the art world have lowered, and yet one thing has not budged. Thomas, an old woman artist, is still remarkable for being old and for being singular because of being old. In an art world still oriented around youth, an old artist's success still seems unusual. Unusual she still is, but also, and mostly now, thankfully, for her amazingly, singularly, originally fabulous art which is all her own. Thank you. I turn it back to you, Steve.
All right. Um, before we do anything, I want to thank our three speakers for their wonderful papers. They were beautiful. I learned a lot. And, um, and there are some really great through lines through which we can start to talk. And, and, and one, two of them are the, the ways in which Alma Thomas intersected with so many different institutions. And so, so what Rebecca and Renee, you both brought out is this really interesting sort of context through which through which Thomas moves through the city, but also you both do these remarkable horizontal histories of her and certain institutions. So in, you know, Rebecca, in your case, it's, 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 it's Alma Thomas and Howard. Renee, in your case, it's, it's Alma Thomas and, and, and the Phillips Gallery. Um, and then now you bring it home <laughs> when you start talking about her age and money and and how that enabled some of these intersections that we're talking about. And, um, and so I guess sort of coming from there, um, another term that comes up for me and it, it, and it came about now both in your paper and in your bio, but also in other papers um, intrinsically. And that's, that's this notion of this, this black woman who's moving through most of the 20th century with her freedom intact. And I would love to hear the three of you talk more about that, either with respect to your papers, each other's papers um, and the like. Well, I'll say something. (laughs) Anyone can. (laughs) Um, One of the things that really struck me about Alma Thomas uh, is her personal autonomy in, in addition to the autonomy of her art. Uh, she worked in the way she wanted to work from the 60s on, which is singular. It's her art. You, you know Alma Thomas's art when you see her art, um, which uh, I think is part of the gift of her age, that she, she was a mature woman. She was not subject to the... the the winds uh, of fashion or, or the times that she was in. So um, I, I really wanted us to focus on that because so often we, we omit everything that is not race or not gender in yeah. the identities of, of the artists that we talk about. Um, I know that you don't do that, Stephen, and I, I don't know um, Renee and Rebecca's work closely enough to, to know whether or not you're, you're focused on, on uh, these other things. But um, one of the things I really want us to appreciate about Alma Thomas is Alma Thomas as herself. We know Alma Thomas as a black woman painter. We know Alma Thomas as a woman painter. We know Alma Thomas as a color school painter, a 20th century painter, a Washington DC painter, but also she was herself. You know, I, um, I've long had to deal with questions of Howard University's colorism and she was one of the villains in that. But um, she was also a fabulous painter. Yeah. Rebecca or Renee? 
Well, I was going to say that this question, um, you know, my own work on Lois, Melu Jones, and the really, and how she saw Alma and Alma's success at the same yeah. moment that Lois is trying to succeed yeah. and to think about that question yeah. of money and that, you know, and Lois gives this great interview in which she says that basically Alma made it because she had a gallery and Lois didn't have a gallery. And so to think about their lives outside yeah. of yeah. Howard, yeah. their lives yeah. as friends, as both artists, you know, trying to make it. And I think you drew, uh, you know, I think questions of class come into play and questions of money and how do you pay for, um, you know, I love the attention to detail about buying the art books, but then also, you know, what do you do when you're selling uh, your work and with um, Alma paying it forward by supporting um, the Howard students and funding scholarships and programs yeah. back yeah. on campus. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think this question of what, um, you know, trying to do the art world on their own terms and in DC um, in particular, what that yeah. means is you're navigating these different mm. um, circles as Renee was also talking about, because you have not only Howard, you have uh, the Phillips, you have, you know, American where she's at. You also have sort of this international mm -hmm. diplomatic set in the 60s and yeah. 70s. And as Black women trying to sort of be a part of that as well. So, yeah. I mean, that's really um, so true. And it was just interesting to sort of see um, where we could find Alma Thomas in relationship to the Phillips. And then also see a little bit more about, um, you know, who she was friends with, who she exhibited mm -hmm. with, and how yeah. much they all exhibited together in all these different art galleries. Um, you know, and just to learn, um, that uh, who she supported, who supported her. It was just a, a, a wonderful sense of community that um, these artists um, had with one another. And there was a lot of support um, in DC for them. Yeah, and it also, it seems to me because I've not done any of the amount of work on Alma Thomas that the three of you have, even though I, I flirted with writing a dissertation on her back in the oh. days. Um, and, um, and I coveted her house here in DC. <laughs> That's another um, but, um, but, but she, you know, I'm really interested in what you were all able to draw out because in a way she also, you know, doesn't, you know, other than the fact of her work, which is far more sort of logical and technical and complex than people so so often gave it credit for. Mm -hmm. You know, people called it immediate. And, and to dispel that, all you have to do is look at it, right? Um, and look at it closely. But um, but you know, I'm really interested in in hearing the three of you talk about your way in, because in a in a certain way, as much as as much as there is, there is not as much. Right, as, as there might be for some of her, some of her male peers. Like there's all this material, there's all this stuff. Yeah. And with her, there's, there's less. And so I would love to know how the three of you navigated that. I love Jewish, uh, Judith Wilson's work on Alma Thomas. I think that was really the lodestone for me. Um, because Judith Wilson went in deep. Uh, she was working after Alma Thomas's death, but she talked to, to various, um, she talked to Jeff Donaldson and Sam Gillian. Sam Gillian was very young 
and had his issues with Elma Thomas at the time. I think he found her work kind of simplistic at the time. And, and he's grown out of that, uh, perhaps with his own success. Um, Rebecca, I, I was also fascinated with the relationship um, with Jones and Thomas. Uh, with Jones so much, so skilled, but so caught in the 20th century, in the middle of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And seemingly caught in the politics of Howard too, in a way that, that Thomas was not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, that's where I thought it was important to draw attention to. I mean, we afford Thomas mm -hmm. this revered position as being the first graduate. And then I'm thinking about, you know, I'm in an institution now, I'm seeing departments launch and thinking about what those first few years like yeah. are like yeah. for students and for faculty in those moments and thinking to myself, I wonder what it was like to be in a classroom where, you know, there's, you know, hiring faculty searches are happening all the time. You have people coming in and out. And then, so when Lois is there, like starting in 1930, you know, it's more, it's becoming more established and more entrenched in the, the sort of ideological debates that are going to rage mm -hmm. um, are really becoming entrenched. And so I think yeah. you're right. You know, Lois, unfortunately can't escape all of it. Although I would say mm -hmm. she tries, yeah. but to go to your earlier question, Stephen, what strikes me um, is the way in which um, so many of these artists were charged with being their own archivists and that the way in is through their archive that Lau lives in the case of Alma Thomas at the Archives of American Art. But then also even with the advent of this exhibition, um, you know, on Instagram, I was um, texting with Seth and Jonathan, the curators of the show, because they've identified one of the photographers um, and sort of attributed it to John Simmons, who was a Fisk student. And um, to think about all of the new things that are gonna come out now with a project like this, that was such a close look at her life mm -hmm. and what all new avenues of scholarship are gonna yeah. come out of it because people are gonna be paying more attention to what she left in the archive and then you know, adding to it, I think in really specific ways. But for me, it started with sort of thinking about how um, meticulous she had been in keeping things for us to be able yeah. uh, to tell these stories now. Yeah. I would absolutely agree. I mean, the archives um, of Alma Thomas's mm -hmm. papers are were an essential resource. And it was interesting to see what was there and what was not there. Um, there wasn't an abundant material of Philp's collection, um, archival things there, but there were some. And it was interesting to see, you know, the news clippings in the archives and note uh, what was cut and what was cut out, uh, you know, <laughs> it, just in terms of what she highlighted and what she mm -hmm. didn't highlight and why. Um, and then uh, also, you know, the Phillips is digit digitizing their archives. So that uh -huh. made it helpful to mm -hmm. sort of dig in a little deeper and offer kind of um, a perspective of who was at the Phillips during the time, what performers were at the Phillips, what were their connections to the founder, you know, and then mm -hmm. assume uh, connections to Thomas in that route. So. And then also the newspaper, um, historical newspapers from um, the DCPL, how that's all digitized. I mean, uh, doing that was really helpful to sort of set the scene and figure out the players in the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that and, and it's beautiful. And what what you, what the what the the 
three of you have done is to look at that because that's a teaspoon. I mean, there's there are things, right? There are these disparate things, which is sort of any archive, right? But but when we think about someone like Alma Thomas, and I think black artists in many ways generally, um, when there's not, you know, in the in the during most of the 20th century, when there's not a you know hugely robust black art press, right? When black papers mention them by name. But then probably don't say much more. So we can, we know mm. that you know Alma Thomas was at X place at Y time, right? Um, but then the three of you were able to start filling in those blanks, and 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 the whole exhibition does that, right? Mm. It starts to fill in these blanks. I mean, it's a forensic project, <laughs> right? It's forensic, it's archaeological, and it's brilliant in in many ways, but especially in that way yeah. where they brought you know Jonathan and Seth. And the rest of you, um, as contributors and people bringing it to different places, brought so many things to light that that five years ago we just didn't know. Mm. No, I mean, and it's all there, but it was the sort of putting together of all these pieces, yeah. right? That that I think gives us you know something that's more than the sum of its parts. Mm. And I think that that's crucial in sort of thinking about thinking about what. Um, what we what we're looking at today because what you've done even in these three talks you we we get this whole spectrum of relationships and and also the rhetorics that many of us you know especially as as you know women as black people um as some combination of all of it have to deal with you know you're the first or you're the only <laughs> or you're you're the oldest um and all of those and and i think that you know all of those things came to bear for us in so many beautiful ways in, in your papers. And along those lines, I mean, I loved, you know, you, we can draw a line from when Rebecca, you know, sort of, you know, there's that quote, her retirement has not been from, but back into art, you know, through Renee's, Renee's beautiful talk about how, where she was moving and everything, which, which really belies the notion of Washington the Washington art scene was as segregated as we might have thought it was. Mm. And I think that's especially true after 1963, 1964. Um, but then we, now you come in and the, you, yeah, she did what she knew needed to be done. <laughs> and I was like, okay, there's our arc. Yeah. And she had, she had the money to do it. <laughs> she had the money to do it. Right. And so, yeah. <laughs> And um, drive in the tenacity also. I mean, but she's so impressive and such a role model, I think, for many people. Just she just kept going. Nothing stopped her. No barriers. Just moving ahead. Well, something that kind of slowed her down. It's it's in the chat. One of the it's questions. It's in the chat. I was yeah. going to bring this up. Her uh, disability. Um, yeah. Joelle uh, Michaud about her um, disability. And these days when we're more attuned to that. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, those are her arthritis uh, slowing her down and her illnesses and the 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 weight of age uh, also mm -hmm. made it harder for her to yeah. make her work and perhaps also uh, cut short her life because she was still working when she died. Right. But we also need to appreciate what what she achieved, especially since she often works in such large scale. 
Um, I actually really like the smaller pieces on paper, you know, that were, I saw them in the uh, Munchen Gallery uh, last yeah. year or year before that, <laughs> pre-COVID, yeah, BC. Um, but she was still working and she was working at a time when um, disability could not be acknowledged. Right. We could not say uh, she is a disabled person or she is an impaired person or she's working against um, the weight of her age and her, um, what's the, I mean, she, I don't know if I should say she's disabled, but she, yeah, she was disabled yeah, because she was least. not completely able. Yeah. Right. Or otherly yeah. or, or, you know. Yeah. Um, maybe she, she, she did what she needed to do. It's just, you know, the question is how, you know. At what cost? Yeah, what cost? Yeah. Um, we're getting a lot of really mm -hmm. great questions mm. in the chat. And so I would love to open it up for some of those questions. Mm -hmm. um, there was the one about, from Joelle Michaud about the physical disabilities. Yeah. Um, I also want to you know, sort of acknowledge Jonathan Frederick Walls, who reminds us that, well, Abe, for the show, Jonathan yeah. Furman, thank you. Um, but also, you know, for reminding us that Alma's Thomas's youngest sister, yes. uh, Thomas, was a librarian at Howard, and she organized a lot of the materials yeah. for the of American yeah. art. Um, but there's one here, Miguel de Baca asks, if there was something that you wish to know or discover about Thomas that was not in the archive or was inaccessible or not visible to you for some reason, and that's for everybody. I wanna know more about um, her uh, sort of vice presidency at the Barnett Aiden Gallery. I wanna know more about like what she uh, could actually do. I want to know about the conversations she might have had between Herring and Aiden, and um, if she had any choice in the exhibitions that were um, on view there, or uh, or any of that. Um, her voice is always attached to like her leadership role and her funding role in that gallery. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, I, I've always been curious about um, her role in shaping it. Um, and there's a wonderful dissertation about it that a scholar um, with the last name of Abbott has written, but. Um, that's something that you don't see in the papers, and um, mm -hmm. I think it's worth studying. Yeah. Rebecca, Nell, anything that, that you wish you could have, you know, is there a smoking gun you wish you could have found that you did not find? Um, I'm always interested, and, in, you know, I think that reconstructing um, pedagogy and pedagogical practice is so challenging, right, because uh, every classroom is different, right? Regardless of what's on the syllabus, right? The energy and the conversations can be different in the classroom. So I um, am always looking for more insights into um, the classes that she took and taught, right? So at Shaw, she is, you know, curating. She does a show of her students' work. She does a show um, where she borrows works from the Howard Gallery and Barnett Eden for the DC Public Library. So information into how she was incorporating some of her um, studio training uh, and art practice into um, what she was doing at Shaw, I think would be a fascinating way to illuminate that sector of her, of her life. I would, there are two, two areas I would love to have known more about. Um, and 
these are partly about art and about art history and about art practice, but they're also kind of biographical. Um, I've mentioned um, the colorism at Howard, and um, I think she probably negotiated that pretty well because she was she was coloristic herself and uh, probably didn't really run into any problems there. But what about the male supremacy? You know, she was a smart, hardworking. Um, mm -hmm. uh, she had the money to do what she wanted. You know, we we know that she was uh, supporting um, the uh, gallery, you know, basically by herself for a certain amount of time. You know, what were the personal dynamics when she was she had the money but she had to defer to men and men who were younger than she. That's one. And the other, I would love to know the vector of her relationship with uh, Lois Maine Jones. We know that early on, um, Thomas was a teacher within Jones's probably kind of patronizing um, Paris club to sort of uplift teachers. I mean, I'm reading into that. But Jones uh, was the teacher in that. And probably early on, Thomas was, if not a student, but, you know, kind of, she was one of the, the teachees. Yeah. And then over the years, she got so much more um, attention than Jones. Uh, you know, how did that work over the years? I'd love. There was a there's a comment here. So Lois and my aunt were rivals <laughs> for Charles Lewis. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, it just got real. <laughs> 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 that they were rivals, and you and and I've wondered about that too. Sure. You know, um, and and also other paintings that sometimes fall out. And so she did do a painting on the March of Washington. Yeah. In, in like, right. 63. Would have been and, and yeah, I would love to think about how that fits mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. or doesn't, mm -hmm. right, to everything else. Yeah. And so, but people, there is this like amazing thing going on in this chat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> let's see. Where, let me go on. We've got a question about the project with Jonathan and Seth are talking yeah. about the chat. Um, yeah, there's also a question about whether she was married. And I purposely put that in to kind of say, oh, <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. We don't yeah. know if she was, um, she probably was asexual and devoted to her art. Um, but if there was more to it, I wouldn't be at all surprised if she was a deeply closeted gay person. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, well, the other sort of, if, if we want to talk about the pink elephant in the room, you know, a lot of that, the spaces that she moved in, on, in and out of were queer spaces. Sure, sure. You no, know, Avanti's yeah. place, you know, Barnett Aden. Oh, those that's are, right. Those are queer spaces. They were a couple, weren't they? <laughs> um, but Aiden and Herring? Yeah, Aiden and Herring. Yeah. yeah. They were a couple, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And so, and Howard had its, you know, queer stuff going Howard. on. And, <laughs> you know, it, and we don't talk about that. Yeah. Talk about that. And, and how do people, you know, how are people moving in and out of that? You know, Thomas, Jones, everybody. 
And how what what is what is that what does that look like? It's it's it's, it's a hot mess. Yeah. Um, you know, and and that's yeah. I think for me that's the thing being yeah. Um, I got a I got a message saying um, that someone wrote that my aunt was married for one for one night. night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, she was married. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so. But we're getting we're getting more questions. But yeah. also while we while we peruse questions, if there's anything in there y'all like, just yeah, go there. So uh, I can jump in yes, on the lowest. I mean, yeah. the lowest and all the situation. I think it's so. So I also think that it's um, that where Thomas remains in Howard's orbit, right? She's teaching mm-hmm. just south of campus. She's living nearby. She's interacting with Herring and Aiden outside. Lois is trying to rise in the ranks. You know, she is, you know, she's trying to, you know, get raises, be promoted, work. She has to work through the Howard Institution. um, And she found herself continually um, stonewalled by Porter, first by Herring and then by Porter. And Porter and Herring, and Thomas are tight. So I think ah. that that's, so, you know, I think that, and Stevens or um, Jonathan points out in the archive that there is tension between Alma Thomas and Lois Milu Jones. And I think some of it is, you know, I think that Lois, they're active, they're in the same circle. I think you're probably right about some of the stuff around the little Paris studio and how that was organized. Um, but I also think that, you know, they're, together, but they also are both trying to achieve something on their own, right? And so I don't think that it's as, and I think that for Lois in some ways she saw it as a zero sum game, like one person was gonna get it and Alma got it Mm -hmm. and she's stuck at Howard not being paid, being told by the deans that she can't go up for promotion and all that stuff. And I, you know, that has to bring up a lot of feelings. So I'm not surprised that we see that plays out. And I also don't think that they have to be friends, right? I don't think that part of the, you know, I know that's not what you were saying, but it's this idea that, yeah, yeah, like it doesn't, um, that they can be doing different things. So. So also, you know, there's this um, different ways there. uh, Jonathan talked about, uh, I think it's in, in Jonathan, uh, yeah, the mm-hmm. big break takes place in 1952 when Thomas, quote unquote, betrays the academic tr- tradition by switching to courses at e- AU. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I have friends who, you know, vineyard friends. I, I'm not a vineyard person. No, but I have vineyard <laughs> friends. I have some of my best friends go to the vineyard. But, some of them and, are here on this, <laughs> this, this webinar. So yeah, but, um, but uh, Lois yeah. Maylou Jones went to the vineyard. She continued going to the vineyard. So she was in that um, Black Vineyard stream. Mm-hmm. And Alma Thomas, after going to American University and then changing the way that she did her work, also, you know, I don't know enough about her, um, her summers, for instance, but I, I'm, I have a suspicion that Jones is sticking more to rising in the the black bourgeois world, and Jones is reaching out, even though it's through um, the two big shows in the '70s, a black artist, 
Yes. But she makes her, you know, her breakthrough at the Whitney. Yeah. yeah. That's a big deal. And so we, we don't have a lot of time left. And so I have a question for all of you and you know that it's coming. Um, that is also for our audience. And so, you know, the last question is if we, you know, I'm thinking of you know, how we sort of think about the show, you know, Alma Thomas, everything is beautiful. And, and these, these events of the, these days and how we find beauty in the everyday. You know, how do we do it? How do you three do it? Um, how does our audience do it? We want them to think about it too. Yeah. Silence. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about that. I, you know, and my answer is not going to be about art. It's going to be about the world we live in, um, in which it's so easy to get really depressed. But for me, I have been happy um, in how our United States world has opened up since last year, since 2020. I'm saddened by the losses of COVID-19, but I think that our society, uh, having gone through the wrenching of the pandemic and, and the awakening of Black Lives Matter, I think we're so much better a country now. I don't even want to look forward to what the Republicans might, well, I shouldn't have said that, to what they might do to us, but just savor the moment in which so much more is open and so many artists of all sorts are doing so much fabulous work. Yeah. And I would say that, um, I mean, one thing about Alma Thomas that I've always found impressive was her importance placed on community service and how that ranks so high in her life that she uh, used art to you know, create these community service projects in her community and beyond. And that idea of service, of giving back, is so much wedded into her identity. And I think that's something that, you know, we all can do as individuals looking beyond the selves, looking to other people mm -hmm. and connecting that mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. Rebecca. I was gonna say, you know, as someone who's delighted to be back in the classroom with my mm -hmm. students and thinking about her long time career teaching that I find um, so much energy and beauty in the fresh perspectives that students bring to artworks that I've seen many times before in the classroom. And so I see that in them and their yeah. excitement in seeing new things in the same way that I think that this exhibition is asking us to see her work in new ways and to identify new things and find yeah. new beauty everywhere, so. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. And, and there are so many great things in the chat. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, it's, it's details, just sort of seeing the detail in my garden. <laughs> um, or, you know, generosity. <laughs> generosity, you know, other exhibited towards others or towards ourselves. Yeah. Um, or I, I'm lucky I can look out the window and see beautiful things every day. Um, or go into the gallery and see <laughs> see something amazing, but but you know we're at the, about at the end of our time together, and I really want to thank the three of you again, Rebecca, Renee, and Nell. These were really beautiful, beautiful. Thank talks. you, Rebecca. Thank you, Renee. Thank um, you, Stephen. And I just you know, and they were so kind and so generous and so brilliant. And it's exactly what you want in a panel. And thank you, you know, for, for the conversation we've had. But I also want to thank, you know, Jonathan and Seth for their show. I yeah. want to thank 
all of you for joining us. We have we have a lot of people here. And, um, and I hope that you get a chance to attend the other, the other events associated with what we're calling AlmaFest. <laughs> yes. and, um, and if you're in Washington, take a walk up to Logan Circle and you know take a walk by mm-hmm. her house, which is at 15 MP Northwest. You might see me standing there wishing that it was <laughs> <laughs> and, and, so, and please go see the Chrysler Show, which is up on uh, view for, I guess, another week. It's exactly. gorgeous. I had yeah. that wonderful opportunity exactly. to tour it with Seth. And then please, at the end of October, October 30th, come by the Phillips Collection, uh, where we'll have the show on view through January 23rd. Wonderful. And I also want to put a plug in for our next panel, which is the nation's capital in the time of Alma Thomas. Uh And that begins at three o'clock this afternoon. And if you don't attend, we will judge you. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, everyone. And enjoy the rest of your day. It's been great. Thanks, everyone.